you know, I remember sitting in these clients being like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. And when you're, you know, applying for some big job that you're not sure if you're qualified for, you're like, well, you know, I've kind of been doing work for the last five years. I haven't really been qualified for and convincing people. The direction of everything is like, putting this pressure on younger people to kind of decide earlier and specialize earlier. And even while we're at uni at 20, like we're just trying to keep these options open for ourselves, aren't we? Because you're kind of aware that you have no idea. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Hello, lovely neighborhood. We are back to our regular programming after the Soul Diaries last week with a ripper guest to kickstart November. How are we in November already? Oh my God. I am so thrilled to have Verve Money CEO and co-founder Christina Hobbs in your ears this week, whose path yay blew me away. Christina is not your average financial CEO, although she did happen to found Australia's first ethical super fund by women for women. By investing in Verve, members have insured over $270 million in superannuation, is not directly invested in fossil fuels or other harmful industries, which is already a cool enough story of an industry disruptor. But to hear that she came up with the idea in a shipping container in Baghdad, Iraq, during her work with the United Nations World Food Program, where she eventually became head of operations? I mean, tell me more, right? What an amazing story. And that's just 10% or maybe even less of the amazing story that she has to tell. So I will do just that. I will let her tell you the wild and wonderful story herself. But she's just such a fascinating woman doing incredible things in a pathier that continues to take amazing twists and turns. I just hope she inspires you as much as she does me. Chrissy, welcome to Seize the A. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. As anyone who has listened to the show for a while will know, I think they sort of by now understand parts of my brain and the kind of people I fangirl. And so your story in so many ways and for so many different reasons, just I'm already fangirling you and all the things you've done. So I'm very excited to have you on the show. (laughs) Oh, that's so lovely. I mean, you have an incredible story and I can't wait to get into it. But I think one of the things that often happens is, particularly with someone like yourself, who's a CEO, a really high level, high achiever, it's easy to forget that you started somewhere and I'm sure there are parts of your life that are very relatable and normal. It's funny to like, yeah, I guess here as well when people are sort of like a CEO like you and then it's sort of like I'm sitting here like, you know, in my bedroom, I'm like, you know, eight and a bit months pregnant. Are you? Yeah, yeah. I'm in like a, a sweat jumper and like, it's like, oh yeah, that's right. I am a CEO. Like, I just feel that is. Oh my gosh. I'll show you my bum. You won't be able to see it on the on the show, obviously, but you know, there it is. <laughs> oh my gosh. Chrissy, you do not look pregnant at all. <laughs> When you're sitting down. I know. The, the funny thing is that I'm actually um, in the process of negotiating this really big business deal. <laughs> and I'm sort of constantly with all these lawyers and like MA lawyers. And, um, you know, the other day there was in this meeting, there was a lot of dip swinging going on. And I was just like, guys, I'm giving birth in three weeks. This has to get sorted. I just stood up and showed my belly and none of them knew I was pregnant. And they were just like, what the hell? Oh my gosh. It's so funny you said that because I used to be an M&A lawyer in my first life and I I know the dick swinging. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> I'd never seen it before, so I was shocked. But I was like, I know how to solve this one. <laughs> I'll just show you <laughs> my massive belly. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, I love starting every episode with that kind of icebreaker question because there's always something going on that is not what you would expect for the title. You know, we often sort of get introduced two people by their titles first and have all these preconceptions about how glamorous your life must be and and also forget that you know you're also a mum doing all this like that's wild yeah 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 well that was a very relatable beginning so thank you <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so pretty much the first part of the show is called Your Way TA, which is tracing back through really from the very beginning back to childhood when you sort of had no idea where you'd end up and tracing through all the chapters really that make the pathway that leads you to the life you have today. And I think if people meet you now, it's very easy to assume, you know, you know what you're doing, you're incredibly successful, you kind of can, you know, hold your own in a boardroom and negotiate big deals. And it's, I think, easy to forget that there were a lot of times, I'm sure, of self-doubt or loss of direction or totally different careers in your case, which is my favorite kind of story. So can we go back to the beginning and trace through all the chapters of Chrissy, like right back to maybe even before school, like what were you like? What were your first dreams and hopes and what did you think you'd be? Yeah, it's a really good question. I was definitely, I have these like really early memories of, you know, training for athletics carnivals in primary school and going on runs. And I I just remember like as I'd be running, I'd be like giving these speeches in my head, which like now that I look back, it's like a really weird thing to have done. But like (laughs) pretend I was somebody important and like be making up speeches as I was like practicing for my school cross country and things. So I think I sort of like, I don't know, I guess I must have always had an ambition to at least be someone who was going to be making speeches. I love that. Yeah, but I, I don't think I thought much about work. You know, I grew up in Canberra and I was a very like outdoorsy camping kind of hiking you know just living you know in the outdoors sort of kid which was really my priority a lot of sport but I guess like you know if I think back my sort of like weird career journeys did start quite young I I was you know an 11 year old doing a a paper run which you know looking back was sort of slight child labor type-esque definitely earlier than the 14 and nine months that (laughs) I think it was like my my friend's older brother got a paper run and he like subcontracted it to us which meant that like the hourly rate went from about three dollars an hour for delivering pamphlets to about a dollar fifty or something but you know (laughs) we thought it was wonderful so you know it was sort of doing that and then it was yeah like working as a swim instructor working at a sort of like a kid's indoor play centre doing kids' birthday parties. So I sort of had always these like really random jobs that, you know, just kind of kept progressing. I ended up during uni being at Parliament House and I was working as a gym trainer there for some of the politicians. And like, so I sort of had this very like eclectic kind of early career. And I guess I really you know, just loved all those sort of random experiences that I had. I love that so much because I feel like I also kind of had a lot of random things and none of the dots connected really at the time. And I love that when you're a kid, they don't really need to. You just kind of do the things that you think are interesting and that you enjoy or that just come up because like a friend of a friend has a paper run. And I I just, I love that kind of later you can start to trace through like the themes of Mm. the reasons why you were good at those things or the reasons why you like them. But it's, it's so cool because there are so few people who go at five, I want to be a doctor and then they become a doctor. And now it's sort of like you've founded your own superannuation fund, but like super wasn't even on your mind. And that that whole finance world was just not even playing a part back then. And I, I think that's so cool to remind people. Yeah, I think, I think definitely. And, and like how you even kind of get there is like quite an interesting thing as well. And obviously we'll talk about it more, but, you know, how do you even get from that step from step from step and then you know even if I think the two years before probably even 18 months before a year before I did start that funny if someone had told me that's what I was going to do I would have been like what (laughs) it's kind of like really weird even to me so which is also why the story is so cool because I love that it doesn't have to be something that, as again, you know, has been 25 years in the making. You can actually do wild, amazing things that, in you know, some people prepare their whole lives for, but a lot of people don't and they still make a really amazing success of it. So mm. I think it's cool. Like even looking at uni for you, I'm like, science? You did science, like science and commerce, of course, but like science, commerce, it's like, what does that equal, you know? What did you think that was going to – how did you choose that? Yeah, I mean, that one was an interesting one and and it probably seems almost less random now. Like I remember at the time like people were like, this is just super weird. <laughs> It was basically because I wanted to study psychology. So I did psychology under a science degree and I sort of had the opportunity to do obviously in your first year, like different subjects. And I cannot remember why. I think it was something like my mum sort of, you know, her mentality is very much like, what is going to get you a job after university? And I think she was like, you need to study like accounting. <laughs> like I remember, which is like so weird. Cause like, you know, me and um, my, one of my best friends now I met in this accounting degree and we just laugh. Like we're just like, what the hell were we doing studying accounting? Like, this is so weird. But I ended up doing this, like, you know, one accounting unit. And 
it was quite in my first year of uni. And then that was just quite interesting because I think the science side was very like, it was very theoretical. It was very like not applied in a way. It was like big picture thinking kind of a study, whereas like the accounting and going into economics and finance and was very much, you know, it's extremely practical and applied in a way what I was studying. It was like these numbers on this balance sheet and this is how you do this and this is how you do this. And I really loved that kind of having both elements of that and ANU while studying sort of had a great opportunity to just do a two degrees in four years. So for me, I really quickly decided like I wanted to do the two degrees. And I think probably what appealed to me was just that I could really quickly see how that applied to work. And I think for me, like I'm, I'm a much more practical person than more of a theoretical person. So I think I found that quite exciting. And then in my second year of uni, I actually got a fantastic job as a bookkeeper. So, you know, my friends were still slaving it out at like the fish and chip shop where I had been working. And I remember going into this interview as a as a bookkeeper and, you know, I'd been like prepping with my mom and I was going to ask them for like, I think it was like $20 an hour and like we role played that and they were like, you know, what's your pay expectation? I being like, $20 an hour. And they were like, oh, we were going to pay you 40 <laughs> So, like, that also was quite inspiring at the time because, like, you know, getting paid like $40 an hour, like even now that sounds quite good, but this was like, you know, 20 years ago at uni. Like I was like, my life is made. And then I was like, oh, I love this accounting business. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> That sort of inspired me to, yeah, I guess do those dual degrees. Oh my gosh. I did um, law arts and I think I kind of did dual degrees more as like a, it allowed me to like make less decisions about my future. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think that too. I think it's, it's so funny how like, I feel like the direction of everything is like putting this pressure on younger people to kind of decide earlier and specialize earlier. And, and then, yeah, like, of course, like, you know, even while we're at uni at 20, like we're just trying to keep these options open for ourselves, aren't we? Because you're kind of aware that you have no idea what you want to do. And you also don't even know the jobs that exist then either. You don't know until you get into the workforce, you can't see all the gray areas in between the like professions that we kind of learn about. But even if you do, I mean, you're an amazing example that even if you do pick one pathway, it's also okay to change and very normal and healthy to change your mind later and like swap to something completely different. So I think that's also something that I try and like hammer home a lot in these interviews is to, you know, talk to people who have done lots of different things and that don't necessarily, they're not necessarily different things in the same industry either. They're just like, you do one thing and then later you realize it's time to do something else. And I I think that's something I definitely want to focus on a lot with you is like knowing when the time is to change or and then coping with the the novelty and like lack of comfort and familiarity but before we get there I mean it's funny that we both kind of started in very corporate context (laughs) how did you end up at Deloitte and I mean most of my friends who went into management consulting still can't explain to me what that is so (laughs) how did you end up there and what was that as like a platform for your career yeah, it was really interesting. I just remember being at uni one day and I think it was Bain, one of the management consulting companies had, had come and they were doing a talk on, you know, working there. And I don't even know how I got to that talk, but I remember going and, you know, obviously they would have done a great sales pitch. And I was like, this sounds amazing. And so I applied with them and I didn't get the role, but I was quite excited about the idea of management consulting. And I think probably looking back, you know, I'm a complete ADHD person. And so I imagine what probably inspired (laughs) me was this idea of just like, you know, working across different clients and doing like really varied work. So, you know, really, if I think about Deloitte, it was like, I just remember at the time, like, I was like, okay, I didn't get that one. And who else is still open? And I just remember that they just happened to be open and, you know, were closing soon. And I think it's like a really, it's quite interesting because for me, you know, I think it also just speaks to like, you know, privilege and the kind of universities you go to. Like I was really lucky to even find out about that career path and to actually find out about it before, you know, there were still some companies that had applications open. Whereas I remember when I started and, you know, some of my colleagues I was starting with that had gone to like Sydney Uni, you know, they had all actually been in feeder programs from the university where they'd been like already working doing internships in management consulting firms. <gasps> They'd found out about it sort of in their first or second year of school and like had like tailored their whole careers towards that. And, you know, it just sort of like really highlighted to me this kind of, I didn't, you know, Canberra is not a business community place. It's a public service town. But even the concept of like 
business or what that means and what those job opportunities are. Like it's, we don't have that in our culture. And, you know, I think that just really highlighted that divide. And obviously if you're, you know, someone studying in a rural area or if you're from, you know, an even more disadvantaged family, it, it really just highlighted to me that, you know, even just to know what those jobs are and to be preparing for them is such an advantage in itself. So, yeah, that's how I found about at Deloitte. You know, I applied for the job. We did sort of all those interview rounds and, you know, by that point you think you're very, very special for getting that job because you've gone through like six interview rounds and you think because you're so special for that job, like that must just also be like a very special job if they're going to make it that hard to get in as well. So <laughs> they, they did well with that psychology, I must say. I think it was a very special job though mm. because the more – I was one of those people who didn't apply to Bain or McKinsey or anything because – I didn't ever hear about management consulting. Mm. Like it's even now, it's kind of like such a vague thing to describe to people. Like one of my best friends was at BCG, and I'm like, "Tell me how you explain it so I can explain it to other people." Like you go into companies across all different industries, and you spend X amount of time there making spreadsheets and doing models of financial. Th- like you know, I couldn't even explain it to you, but every consultant that hasn't stayed in consulting has done something so cool because the skills that you learn of of analysis of just everything in the world, I don't know, I just feel like it's this amazing, it is a really special job. You get taught to think in this crazy way. Yeah, I think you get taught to think in a good way. And I I think also what it trains you for is it is sort of like sink or swim in terms of make it or fake it. I remember my first, you know, as a graduate, I was getting paid something like 40 grand a year in that graduate job. And I remember straight out of uni, they were billing me out at like $900 a day. (gasps) And you're like really consciously aware of that. So it's sort of like, you know, I remember sitting in these clients being like, I have no idea what I'm talking about or what these people are talking about, but I'm really consciously aware that they're paying this much money for me. (laughs) And so already from day one, you're like, you know, faking it essentially. And I think it's also those skills that then go on to help people later because like, you know, then when you're, you know, applying for some big job that you're not sure if you're qualified for, you're like, well, you know, I've kind of been doing work for the last five years that I haven't really been qualified for and convincing people. So, you know, like it kind of builds that skill set as well. And I think, you know, definitely to be a successful consultant in the early days, you need to just be able to like convince people that you're bringing a lot of value, even when you you may not be bringing that much value to the table, to be honest. <laughs> Being a management consultant, so. I'm sure you are bringing a lot of value. Maybe just that you don't necessarily believe that you're bringing a lot of value. Except I remember like I've got this one really funny story that just comes up all the time where I'd gone to work at, it was at Rail Corp actually for the New South Wales government. And um, it was actually a technology focused product. And this was back in the day where technology was called IT. And, <laughs> um, and so Anyway, and I was like in the project and I was, it was our first meeting or second meeting with the clients and it was like me and the partner, a couple of people were sitting around the room and they kept talking about ICT, which like obviously today everyone knows this is information communication technology, which is, is, is just like what we call IT. But I think that concept was just coming through at that time. I remember something like, it was like ICT, ICT, ICT. And then I was like, you know what, Christina, there is no such thing as a stupid question and you just need to ask them what they're talking about. And I remember being like, um, thank you. Yeah, I've, you know, this is all making sense, but could someone just explain to me what ICT means? And the, the oh, I remember the director no. of the sort of spun his chair around and, and pointed to his door where it was like, he was like director information communication technology and was like information communication technology. And I was just <laughs> like, and the partner sort of like looked to me with his like, like the colour all drained out of his face. And I was like, I guess there might be such a thing as a stupid question after all. Yes, and it was probably that one. (laughs) That was kind of like the last time I decided to let my guard down. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) That's a really, really good point about the idea that, you know, it's a really important skill set, not necessarily to always have confidence, but to be able to like work through the fact that you don't have confidence and kind of even just fake it until you do have more confidence. Like that's the whole, I think like one of the big keys to success is literally just the ability to deal with your self-doubt in a productive way Mm. rather than an unproductive way. And I'd love to tie that into sort of how you, from management consulting, then made a big jump, but not kind of a jump that you know, a lot of people would make like into a different bank or into something that's very business startup focused. You kind of went to 
the United Nations in disaster zones and conflict hotspots in the world and like a massive, massive jump from any any kind of career, but particularly from outside of the UN, from outside of diplomacy or war zones or, you know, I think this is another reason why I'm so excited about this interview because if I hadn't gone into business, the way I would have hoped to use my law degree was with the UN and we went to visit the um, war tribunals in Arusha for Rwanda and like that area of, I don't love conflict, but I love the idea of kind of applying the skills that you learn in a conflict zone. And so to talk to you is just so unbelievably exciting for me. So how did you make such a gigantic jump and what brought it about for you? And then, of course, mm-hmm. going into a totally different industry, how did you deal with that lack of familiarity? Yeah. So I think, yeah, it, it was sort of also something that happened in stages. So I didn't really make that conscious decision to kind of completely end up doing the really extreme work that I ended up doing right at the beginning. But, you know, essentially, I think I'd always heard about this program that the Australian government did. It still does it. I'm not sure what it's called today, but it's, it was essentially a, at the time it was called Youth Ambassadors for Development. And I'd heard about it for a long time. And it was essentially placing people that had, you know, some form of work experience into not-for-profits for a year, sort of on a volunteer salary funded by the Australian government. And so I'd kind of heard about this and was always a bit excited about the concept, but, you know, it was always in the back of my head. And then, you know, probably, I'm sure you have a really similar experience of when you decided to leave law, but I was living in Bondi in Sydney at the time. And I just, I just had this one day where it was like 30 degrees, beautiful sunny day. And I was in my like suit waiting for the bus. And it was like crammed on the bus on Bondi Road, everyone's sweating on you, standing up, you can't get a seat. And then you sort of pile off the bus, like little lemmings onto the train and then got off the train at Martin Place and sort of piled out again and walked down, you know, with another like hundred co-working office people to like our building and, you know, squashed into an elevator and went up the elevator and, you know, got out into the open plan room and there's 200 of my colleagues in their suits sitting at their computers. And I just <laughs> having like almost this panic attack of like, oh my God, is this like my life? Like I just cannot do this any longer. Like I'm so, this is so not me. And I think I'd really enjoyed like the first couple of years of, you know, buying my first suit and buying my first hair straightener and like, you know, buying a pair of heels and kind of doing the power woman thing. And, you know, I'd enjoyed that sort of like, you know, Friday evening drinks. And, but I think at some point that novelty had worn off and I was just like, oh, it's just not really me. Like, I'm just, this isn't really who I am. And, you know, just making money for big companies isn't really like motivating me. And so I started having a look at, you know, just daydreaming really. I was daydreaming about intrepid holidays in Vietnam. And then I was daydreaming about <laughs> looking up this youth ambassador program and looking at placements. And, you know, I just saw this placement one day that literally sounded like me. It was like, looking for like economist in a market analyst position, living in Kathmandu, Nepal. And I'd actually just been on a holiday to Kathmandu, Nepal. And I have no recollection of this, but the friend that I was with swears that we were sitting down one day and a UN car went past and I said to him, when I'm going to come back and work for the UN. <gasps> I have no memory of it, but it was like six months later and there was this UN job like in Nepal that seemed really aligned to my skill set. So I just applied for it. And actually the biggest part of this decision ended up being that I'd also been nominated for the Young Businesswoman of the Year Award at Deloitte. And of course me at this point thinking that like Deloitte was like one of the pinnacle sort of (laughs) in the entire world and that, you know, (laughs) me being a Young Businesswoman of the Year was like extremely important. I just around the same time that I had to accept this application found out that I was like going to be the winner of that for Australia. (gasps) But they obviously weren't going to award it to me if I was about to leave. (laughs) I remember this was like the biggest stressfulest thing, which now in retrospect, I'm like, whatever. But at the time it felt like I was giving up so much. And so, but yeah, I made the decision basically to, to go. And I did look back sometimes. I don't look back today. Like there was, you know, certain periods where I was like, oh my God, I gave up that great opportunity. But no, like now in retrospect, I was like, you know, like I wouldn't even think that. But yeah, and so off I went. It was supposed to be a, a year-long program. A year sounded like a really long time to me at that time. But of course, I settled into this crazy life in Kathmandu, which was like walking to work with like elephants walking down the street. And, <gasps> you know, it was I was supposed to be this market analyst reviewing at the time. It was the high food price crisis. So working with the World Bank, looking at the impact of food prices on small farmers. And it was sort of my second week there where I was in a meeting and, you know, they were discussing like somebody has to go 
and fly in a helicopter and do monitoring of these remote mountainous sites and like nobody wanted to go like and the Nepalis all like had their heads down like trying to hide behind these colleagues like you know my kind of western colleagues that had had already been to these areas were like you know not interested like you know there's no running water you have to sleep in people's houses and I was like pick me (laughs) and so you know I'd only been in the job for a few weeks when like I was being like flown by helicopter and it was like with a local Nepali colleague and it was like Basically, the job was like you need to trek for the next like three weeks from village to village, monitor that like our food assistance has got there, and then we're going to give you some coordinates where helicopters they're going to pick you up from at the end. And I was just like, people pay like twenty thousand dollars for this kind of trekking adventure, and like, yeah, this is my job. I was like, I am so like I couldn't have been like yeah more excited or, and so that kind of. Yeah, was sort of how that started. And, you know, I spent about three years in Nepal and it just was a really random career where I started at this time where the whole humanitarian environment was going through a drastic shift, which was shifting away from giving people things. Mm. So like giving people food or giving people shelter in a disaster or giving people water to just trying to, where markets are functioning, give people cash and letting them sort it out, which just seems so obvious today, but it was this huge shift that was going on. And the agency I was working for called the World Food Program. It's the largest humanitarian agency in the world, but it was probably at that time about 90% men. So the entire workforce and the the people that made up senior leadership, they were logisticians largely. So it was people that had come out of the army that were really good at like in a natural disaster, if there's like a broken bridge, like getting a bridge up so they can get a truck across it all people that had come out of sort of conflict negotiation where if you're in like a conflict and there's five or six different, you know, factions that you have to deal with, negotiating with those factions to get food through. And so it was this extremely like masculine, male-dominated, logistics-focused organisation now being told that they need to bring everything into some form of finance. So, you know, how do you get cash to people? How can you use like mobile technology? Like how can you use thumbprint technology, iris scanning? Like how do you get money into people's hands and so like no one had any idea about money and at some point they were like oh Christina like you get economics and like you get (laughs) finance like you set up these like first (gasps) so I was like not quite my skill set but okay whoa and so I sort of was at the real forefront of developing some of these first kind of programs in the world and then that sort of just sucked me into this like you know suddenly kind of the economics work and all that kind of went to the side I, I sort of got really sucked into working in humanitarian emergencies, delivering cash transfers. So I went from Nepal then, I went to Rome for a while where I was working, where our headquarters were, but being sent out to different disasters. So I worked sort of in Somalia and North Kenya during the famine and, you know, worked on a few different projects and then eventually got sent to Turkey to work on the Syria response. So I spent the last sort of six years across Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, working on like, you know, what was the largest cash transfer programs ever. So we were distributing to millions of people cash, which, you know, doesn't necessarily sound that complicated, but when you think about the reality on the ground of, you know, many of these people never used bank accounts before. People fleeing conflict don't have their ID papers. There's anti-terrorism legislation designed by the US that if you even get $1 in the hands of somebody who's a terrorist, that, you know, you can actually go to jail for that as a person if you're working for the UN. So these like incredibly big challenges to try to resolve in really practical ways sort of became the focus of what I was working on then. Oh my God. I Literally, if you look at your bio, it makes so much sense to go like science com, master's in economics, then Deloitte, and then start Superfund. But then in the <laughs> middle is just like, Syria, Gaza, Iraq, Jordan, yeah, Lebanon, yeah. <laughs> head of operations based out of Iraq, delivering assistance <laughs> when everyone's under siege from ISIS. Like so rando but incredible. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is how male-dominated that environment is. I think when you think about humanitarian work, you just think about awesome humans helping other humans when shit really is going down. But you you, you stop thinking about it as a normal workplace which also has like gender inequalities and power imbalances and and all that kind of thing. So the fact that you became a really senior operator, like heading up a department in a total, totally different market, in a totally different sort of set of circumstances than you'd ever dealt with back here, 
how did the self-doubt play out over there? Like when you're getting, becoming more and more senior and in, the, mm. in this like context of like chaos and, yeah. you know, the fear that most of us have at work is like fear about failure or fear about looking silly. You're also facing like actual fear about like being yeah. shelled. And how was that environment? It was absolutely crazy and absolutely rogue. I think that was the other. <laughs> People hear the UN and they, they think one thing, but the reality is it is an extremely rogue environment and the more kind of challenging the context, the more rogue that that environment becomes. And there's a few aspects of it, I think, that are really reflecting compared to Australian culture. So one is that it's virtually impossible to fire anyone in the UN. It's a criminal level of responsibility. They have to commit a crime, essentially, So things like chronic sexual harassers, chronic kind of bullying, workplace bullying, like these are not really fireable offences in the UN. And then on top of that, it's a really interesting culture because there's no sort of country cultural norm. Like if you're working in Europe or you're working in Australia, you've got, you know, really strong cultures around like what those workplaces should be like. But when you're operating like in a conflict zone, it's like what is the culture of that workplace? It's not the culture of the country. It's not the culture of you know, one of the, you know, a European country it's, and so I think it's sort of this, these factors and then just really extreme power imbalances. So one of the problems with the UN was that they, they initially had these really strong employment contracts, which means that people that are permanent employees, you, you cannot get rid of them. So as an employment workforce, the way they sort of worked around this is to then put everyone else on consulting contractor contracts, which just makes these really big power imbalances between people in leadership and everyone else in the workforce. And so I think that all these factors combined, you get these like things that happen in the workplace that just never, ever happened in Australia. It just shocked me. So for instance, like I had every single country director, maybe bar one who I worked for, like had tried to sleep <laughs> as an employee, senior employee, <laughs> really overt ways. Like I had, you know, this is like the most senior representative of the UN in the country, like, you know, SMSing, like come over to my house. I'm like, <gasps> that in an SMS? Like, are you crazy? Because, you know, and just this bizarre, like, I had to manage these kind of, like, harassments and things that in Australia, like, you know, I remember working at Deloitte, like, the offices were all glass for the reason that, you know, they didn't want any... Impropriety. They were so concerned about these issues that you weren't even, you know, you had to be in glass meeting rooms. You couldn't even be in private meeting rooms. And so that was, like, you know, I think constantly throughout, like, my seven, eight years at Deloitte, it was... But, you know, being the woman in that in that situation that so many of us have been in where you're, like, trying not to hurt people's egos, trying to, like, keep them out of your hotel room. Like, you know, I had situations where, like, five male colleagues were, like, trying to get my hotel room card from the front desk, like, because they were all <gasps> drinking, trying to get into a room and, like, you know, the room calling me and then the person reception feeling bullied and I'm, like, you know, like, it's just just really, really extreme things happening all the time in the workplace environment and then I think if you add on that the pressure of over time people that become really good at emergency work kind of get stuck into emergency work and so you start working for people who have spent the last seven years in conflict zones their families obviously aren't there they're in locations nearby so they're completely becoming separated from their friends their families and the mental health effects on that and then what that leads to in the workplace so just also levels of like bullying like yelling like I started a job one day I remember my really senior boss um who was also the head of the country at that time picking up a phone ripping out the wall and throwing it at someone and hitting the wall on my first day like and you're just like this isn't okay like can everyone calm down so I think like yeah the, the operating environment was really different and I think the reason I thrived was, you know, it was hard, but I think also I was I was really young and female for my role, really working in the Middle East. And I think it actually ended up working in my my favor. So I was just really able to negotiate well, work with governments well. And I think in part it was because people just weren't used to handling a young a young woman. And you would think potentially that could work against you, but I think it was very disarming for people and you know, sort of being out of those like ego wars that sometimes go on, I felt I could actually just get a lot done. So I think it did work in my favour in the end, but it was definitely just this wild context and, you know, also what that, like, you know, when I lived in Iraq on the end, I was living living on a military base with about 2,000 men and there was three or four women. Oh, my God. It was just like... 
luckily a bunch of them were Fijian peacekeepers who were just like amazing but just like a really you know a really different culture to to what you would be living in in Australia in terms of a workplace and you know all the joys that go along with living with people and working with them and like being in confined spaces with them at all times and then just the bizarreness of you know, the way that your life looks like at that point is you work 20 days on and then you have seven days off. And so my life at that point looked, I'm half Austrian. And so my life at that point looked like 20 days on a military base, basically living in a bunker, working in a bunker in Baghdad, (gasps) and then traveling in what's called a hippo, which is like a bomb-proof vehicle to a airport, and then flying to Switzerland and meeting my Austrian cousin and going skiing for seven days. Wild. Uh, and then coming back and it like I think you know I loved that about the career at the beginning like I was like this is like amazing and then I think by the time I was like getting ready to leave I was like oh this is just fucked up like <laughs> you know, this is just like bad like I was like <gasps> you know my cousin's finishing her ski trip and going back to her job actually she was a management consultant as well you know in Vienna and I was like oh that sounds quite nice you know yeah Yeah, and I I think just all that stuff at some point like you can either mentally deal with it or you can just never quite reconcile those things and I think I was always in the place of like this is like a fun experience or a different experience but Mm. you know home was calling me as home I think Mm. it's so interesting because even just in the those two chapters it's like what was gratifying and successful for you at Deloitte then was like completely opposite in this globally meaningful but like fast-paced crazy rogue environment you know overseas and then there comes a point for many people yeah when you're like okay and now I need some normality but one thing I would love to to know and oh my god I could literally speak to you about that chapter just for a whole separate episode I'll have to call you back one day because this stuff fascinates (laughs) me so much but the idea that like one of the things I've found with friends who have been with the UN or have been in the military and then like come back, like get to the point in their life where it's costing them too much and they want some normality and they come home, but the pace of life that your body has become used to and the level of adrenaline, it's almost like you get addicted to that conflict zone and you get addicted to that minute to minute thinking. And then it's really dull when you come back to safety and it's hard to sort of readjust. Did you A, kind of reach a point where you just knew that you were done with that chapter. Did you face that fork in the road again of like, what am I leaving behind to come back just to just Australia kind of after like literally saving lives? And then, yeah, that pace of chaos that you got used to, you know, you came back to something that's superannuation is kind of a very stable, it's not like, I mean, it's not stable, but it's a very stable topic in general, you know. It doesn't involve a lot of global conflict or bombs or <laughs> living in bunkers. Like yeah, what was the yeah. adjustment back? Yeah, it was definitely those – I had all those feels. So, like, it, it took me really, like, two years to really pull myself out. So I I guess it was a couple of stages. So I – because I've been working in conflict for quite a while, I ended up having to, I think, take a – there was, like, a mandatory, like, six-month break or something that I had to take. And so I actually at that time decided, well, I'll take a year off. And I was becoming really passionate about climate change and climate action, I guess, having worked in a lot of natural disasters. And so I made the decision. I had money saved. I was like, I'll come back to Australia for a year. I just wanted to volunteer in meaningful climate work, which was this just amazing opportunity. So it was like I came back and I just found like really small NGOs that I thought were doing really impactful work and, and volunteered for them that was a great thing for a year. And I think in my head, I'd said, I'll do this for a year, I'll do this, and then I'll stay. But towards the end of that period, I couldn't quite reconcile my new life. Like I I was, yeah, I was struggling with pace. I was struggling with what felt meaningful. I felt really detached still from like my friends and family, like mentally detached a bit from life in Australia. And so I did that work. And that was bizarrely what got me into superannuation because I was working for a not-for-profit called 350.org and they were doing, it's bizarre to think about this six years ago, but they were trying to campaign to get people to leave banks and put pressure on their banks and super funds that were investing in fossil fuels. And the biggest problem they had was that in Australia, superannuation controls half the ASX. It, it owns almost half the Australian Stock Exchange. So that is like the biggest pool of capital in Australia. And at that time, there was no superannuation fund that wasn't investing in fossil fuels. At all? None, not one. 
<gasps> we were doing this really successful campaigning on the banking side, like getting people to go into their banks and telling staff we're going to, you know, cutting up their credit cards and saying we're leaving you and we're going to Bendigo Bank or we're going to whoever. But there was we couldn't do that on the super side because there was no one. And so bizarrely what got me into super was that I met a couple of guys that were starting the first fossil fuel-free super fund called Future Super. And so I ended up kind of working with them to help them get that off the ground, just sort of through like, okay, well, this seems impactful now. I'll go and do this. <laughs> so I was still on this kind of year off. And that was bizarrely how I got into super in the first place and being on their board. But yeah, I guess back to your question was that once that was set up, I still had this like, well, what am I doing? Like I'm just working back in an office and and at the same time, you know, Syria was really a program that I'd, I'd tried to get funding for, I couldn't get funding for. Suddenly, because all these refugees were going into Europe, the European government decided to, they literally picked up a project proposal that I'd asked for $50 million for a pilot two years before and said, we're going to fund this with a billion dollars. <gasps> so it was like, you know, my old boss was like, can you please come back? And then I'd also, just to throw in another thing that probably wasn't even on my LinkedIn, but I just ran for parliament at that point. Oh so my God, Chrissy! I just run for the Greens in Canberra. And the main reason I'd run that was that there was a really conservative a liberal senator I was trying to get out who was one of those guys that, you know, brought a lump of coal into parliament. Mm. Anyway, at this point, I'd kind of gone through my savings, not having worked for a year, done a political campaign, done all my volunteering helps out this super fund. And then I was sort of like, okay, like I'm, I'm, I think I hadn't settled. And I was also like, you know, this job was there. And so I went back and did and, and helped establish that for a couple of years. I knew I had to go home. Like I knew that like every time I was coming home, I was feeling more detached. And I, I knew that if I couldn't stay now, I just would never be able to go home. And so, mm. yeah, I did that for a bit. And then I came back and it was actually when I came back that I'd been thinking about the Women's Super Fund. So because I'd ended up on the board of this other superannuation fund, I guess I was more becoming more passionate about like the power of, you know, being able to invest capital in really good, interesting things through impact investing. And had also another topic that wasn't really being talked about then had become aware of the super gap between men and women, which now is something that we talk a lot about. But at that time, it wasn't really on the radar. And so I think I'd been mulling this idea of like, well, what would like an impact focused super fund look like that was focused on women, focused around sort of financial education and coaching, focused around advocacy, and then focused on like, how can we drive impact investing around gender? And I'd been thinking about it and mulling it. And I came back to Australia on a holiday and, you know, I started exploring that, that opportunity. And then I had that real sliding door moment again where UNHCR had emailed me and there was like this fantastic job in Kenya and we need <laughs> you. And, you know, at the same time I was doing all my medical tests to get ready to go to that job, I was doing all the analysis and trying to see if I'd be able to get this super fund up. And it was just this huge sliding door moment of do I go or do I stay? And I think for me, yeah, it was this moment of like, A, I knew that if I didn't stay now, I'd probably never come back. But B, it was like I'd found something that I was like, I think I can like sink my teeth into this in Australia now. And I think this is going to be really impactful. And so that was like, ultimately, it was a big step to to stay. But I stayed and yeah, that became my new baby. <gasps> you so. found your yay. <laughs> my yay. <laughs> I just get goosebumps thinking about like how meaningful and how just perfectly suited you are as the person to bring the first superannuation fund for women to Australia, but how you could never have just done that at the start of your career. Like it took all of this to mull all of the things that needed to happen for Verve Super to come to life. Like that just gives me goosebumps. That's just what I love about these stories is that it took all of your life experience to get you to this point where it felt right and where there was the chance for a sliding doors moment that so much so that like, you know, a couple of months before you founded it, you couldn't have known that you were going to do that. And that to me is just like so magical. I literally spent the whole episode not on the thing that you do now, which is not what I intended to do, but just because like it just it makes me so excited that people do find the thing that they're supposed to do, but that looks different at lots of different chapters of your life. Totally. And I think something that's really funny about, uh, well, not really funny, but I do reflect on it was like, I remember when we first launched Verve and I think for the first like three months, we literally had more people contacting us saying, congratulations, like we had this idea, I had that idea as well and we never did it. Then we actually had new members coming in. Like it was <laughs> like, I was getting like so many people reaching out and 
Like all I could reflect on was that, you know, if I'd actually worked up through the superannuation system, I think people that were in that system, so many of them had the idea, but they could also see like all the challenges and all the complexity, like way more clearly than me because they were like much more embedded in the industry. Whereas because I came into it sideways, like I did have an involvement in superannuation, obviously at that point, but I was completely unaware of how hard it was going to be. Like I, I just, you know, I did not know that. And also because I guess because I'd done all these other things, like I, I felt like, you know, I can you know overcome challenges. But in the end, like I think it was almost like a superpower because if I'd known how hard it was going to be, I don't know if we would have done it, you know. <laughs> I often think that naivety is like a really important ingredient sometimes in embarking on a new venture because, yeah, if you're too aware of all the risks, like sometimes it's better just rip the band-aid and do it. <laughs> but, I mean, I've read it variously described as Australian women retiring with about 37%. I've read 47%. Either way, having, you know, 30 to 40 to nearly 50% less super than men in this country is like I don't know how that statistic isn't more widely known. And I think that's even an old statistic. So, and that it took till 2018 really for there to be a super fund for women is just alarming. But you've gone on to like do such important work towards leveling that playing field and also not just to close that gap, but to ethically invest in super. Like, again, I don't think many of us, we all have super funds. I don't think many of us like know what Mm. we're not as sort of equipped or not that people aren't literate, but it's just not something you think about when you're younger. You're sort of like, oh, God, I've got to have a super fund. Like they take some money every, you know, you don't think about it. And then suddenly you realize your choices as a consumer are making a big impact on like half the ASX. So I'm so sorry I've run off so short a time, but very quickly tell us about the Verve chapter. <laughs> so essentially I decided to start the fund. I probably worked on it by myself for close to a year to get it to the, there was a lot of background work to get it to the point of like, is this going to be viable? So like just the structures of superannuation for really good measure, it's really hard to start, which I think is a good thing because like, you know, the whole point of that is it's people's retirement savings. And so, you know, I had to get an external trustee in place, an external fund manager. I had to get all these parties in place to agree to this. So there was a lot of that kind of negotiation and trust building and, And then at that point, I sort of decided, like, I don't want to do this thing by myself. And so I found two amazing co-founders. So one had been working in the industry and was just super passionate about, like, women and serving women. And she's also just her personality type. You know, when she had a a bit of a career breakdown, she went and became a waitress for six months because she just gets so much joy from serving people. So I was like, okay, like, that's the co-founder I need because that does not bring me joy. I want my customers to be served like absolute queens, but (laughs) me doing that, no, wrong person. (laughs) So Alex was definitely the person for that. And then we knew that we wanted financial coaching to be a big part of it. And so I spent a long time trawling a lot of financial coaches at the time and it was all very much like save money and buy shoes. And I was like, that's not my vibe. <laughs> um, and Zoe had run a not-for-profit for a number of years and had financially coached 10,000 women <gasps> from across Australia. And just so I called her out of the, the blue one day. I found a number on a website and I was like, hey, I'm starting this super fun. And she was like, I've been thinking about starting a bank. <laughs> she was like literally doing some gardening in a rose garden and like without even like leaving the Rose Garden had like agreed to basically like drive from Wagga where she lived to Canberra to like help me start this super fund. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We just kind of came together. I think like real values alignment and off we went and, you know, it was a, it was a massive undertaking. Like it's, it is still, you know, it is still extremely complex and hard. And, you know, sometimes me and my co-founders, we just dream and we're like, our next business is going to be like a tea business. We're just going <laughs> to sell aromatic teas on the internet like wouldn't that be lovely like but you know I think what what has kept us going is like we've really values align we've got a really like clear vision for what we want to achieve and you know it's really hard but we get those breakthroughs like we've been able to you know invest some of our members superannuation in microfinance projects in Asia and the South Pacific for instance so we're using our superannuation fund to provide small loans to mostly women businesses in those areas so they can grow their businesses and we're able to do that with like good returns for the level of risk for our members and just being innovative like that instead of just putting it in a government or some form of corporate bond like putting it into something meaningful and like it's those things that you get that energy of like hey great like we're doing something you know and I think we've really 
been able to drive advocacy on women's retirement outcomes and and being really specific about some of the legislative changes that we need to see. So those moments are, can be quite few and far between in terms of just having to operate a business and grow a business. But it has really brought us a lot of momentum and allowed us to, yeah, I think I think really have the energy to keep going. It's in such a different way to the impact you were making in the last chapter. You are like disrupting an entire industry and allowing half the Australian population the choice that they didn't have pre-2018, which is enormous. And also at eight and a half months pregnant, like with already one child, like if there is a wonder woman that walks this Australiana land that we are on, it is you. No, it is, it is, it is not. It's just like a big struggle. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is just like a struggle to somehow get through. And also I don't particularly advise anyone, by the way, to do a startup at the point in time that they're choosing to start a family. Like, not <laughs> like yeah. the naivety, right? Again, it's yeah, like. Yeah, exactly. I was single when I started Verb and I met my husband during COVID lockdown and, you know, there was a baby sort of conceived a few months later. It was like not particularly timed that, you know, I thought I'd be having a child at this point in my life, but, you know, here we are. So, Well, it seems like you are very good at doing a million things at once in pure chaos and that it seems not to be a barrier for you achieving wonderful things. So I'm sure there will be lots of listeners, um, particularly our, our female listeners in the neighbourhood who are keen to learn a little bit more about ways they could be part of Verb Super and, and make a shift to yeah, have more transparency around where their, you know, retirement outcomes are going and where the money is going I mm. mean, their super account. So where can we find you? Where can we find out more? Probably the best is going to the website, which is verbsuper.com.au. Otherwise, we're on Instagram, so you can check us out as well. Amazing. Well, Chrissy, thank you so much. I could speak to you for another like 55 hours about every chapter. I feel like I literally just scratched the surface. You have such an interesting life. I can't wait to see what you do next. All the very best with baby number two. Thank you. Well, baby number three kind of. Yeah, exactly. Literally baby number three. Yeah. It's been an absolute delight and I'll include the links to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much. Okay, what an amazing human being. I think you can hear that I could have talked her ears off for days, maybe weeks. If you weren't thinking much about your superannuation before this episode, I'm sure you will be now as I did, and I've popped all the links to Verve Super in the show notes, as well as some more information on Christina herself. As always, please do share the episode and any learnings, lessons, or snippets that you enjoyed, if it feels right. We so appreciate your help growing the neighborhood as far and wide as as possible. In the meantime, I hope you're having a fabulous week and are seizing your yay.